1: And so the ability of one of our single moms to be able to log into class from home at 9 p.m. after she puts her kids to bed, that's the difference between her being able to go to college and not go to college. Because she sure as hell can't drive to community college at 10 a.m. the next day. She's at work. And there aren't any classes at 9 p.m. And even if there were, that would mean leaving her kids at home.
0: In case you haven't noticed, there are some big challenges facing the American worker. Unless you're in the top 20% salary wise, if you've kept the same job, chances are you haven't gotten a big raise in the last decade or two. The answer? Well, there are arguments about whether a higher minimum wage should be a good fix or a dramatic shift in tax policy. Rachel Carlson has a different idea. Carlson is the co-founder and CEO of Guild Education, a startup that helps companies like Taco Bell to offer college tuition assistance as a benefit to their employees. Carlson has a unique blend of experiences, working in government, starting companies in Silicon Valley, and going to school on the other side of the tracks as a kid. That give her an intriguing perspective. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly, I want you to subscribe so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to worry about. I sat down with Rachel Carlson to learn what's so hard about getting America's working class salaries rising again and why the answers might be different than you think. Here's Rachel Carlson.
1: Um, So I think... My co-founder and I have two unique but relevant walks in our life that have taken us to what we do now and why we do it. Um, For me, I believe talent is equally distributed throughout the world, and I believe that pretty firmly, but I believe opportunity is not. Hmm. And I think the main way you redistribute opportunity is through education, at least in the society we live in today. It's the most um, efficient mechanism. To redistribute opportunity, and so I—that's why I come to the work of education—is because I believe it's the um, the gateway to to this fundamental principle I really believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the entrepreneurship and the technology approach to it um, came from a couple of things. One. Um, I was really inspired in college and in the Obama administration and some of the other work I had done by the movement in K-12 and a lot of the reform leaders in Teach for America, the founders of KIPP charter schools, a lot of great mentors I had had a chance to work for or learn from. But I realized no one was doing anything about higher ed that I could see from that same vantage point. There really isn't a higher ed reform movement the way that there's been this epic k-12 reform movement for good and bad right the the k-12 reform movement hasn't been perfect mm-hmm. there's critics and supporters on both sides but it's done a lot of good and it's in really infused a ton of talent into the k-12 system when my cousins who are 10 years older than me were in college nobody was talking about going into teaching and by the time i was at stanford half of my friends applied to teach for america as mm. an option um so I've always believed in college as this really important unlock. I, um, my family, my dad and his seven siblings all had the opportunity to go to college. They were an upper middle class family and um, that, that was sort of the given path And all 22 of my cousins on that side. We've all gone to college and had the support of our families to do so, so very little debt. On my mom's side of the family, there are nine of them. And nine siblings? Nine siblings, yeah. I have two. So you have a lot of cousins. I have, yeah, 45 first cousins <laughs> or so. It like, grows sort of annually. <laughs> um, so on that side, um, my the, uh, baby number six, my aunt Marilyn, was the first to go to college. And my mom really looked up to her. And my mom was, ba- was number nine. And so my mom followed in her path. But they were the only two who went to a four-year college um, off the bat. And and of the nine of them, few had the opportunity. But all of them have built really phenomenal careers. Hmm. Where it gets trickier is with my cousins after that. It has been a lot harder for our generation of kids whose parents didn't go to college and who didn't then at 18 immediately jump into college to figure out their careers. Interesting. It's much tougher today.
0: Because, you know, I've talked about this before, on the podcast the fact that they say that parental education level is the highest predictor of academic success i I guess it's having more of an impact perhaps on career success today too but let's pause and tell me what guild education does to address this issue
1: so we help companies offer education as a benefit to their employees and our theory of change is that when employers can help invest in education, it gives people the opportunity to advance college and career at the same time. The reason companies do it is because it's a recruitment and retention benefit. And um, so that's why we call it education as a benefit. And we work with companies like Chipotle, Kentucky Fried Chicken, healthcare companies like DaVita and Hospital Corporation of America, this broad swath of employers who employ the 64 million Americans who work today but haven't earned a higher ed credential or a bachelor's degree. Um, and we believe it's a really effective way to have a triple win. You help the employee by creating a pathway for them to go back to college while working. You create a retention benefit or or, and a recruitment benefit for these employers that are really struggling to recruit and retain frontline workers. Um, And we help our universities with a number of things as well by helping provide really high quality students with supportive employers who want to go back to school.
0: Now you would think that retention is counterintuitive because if I'm a Chipotle worker and I'm Taking night classes or going to school, that means I'm not going to be at Chipotle forever. But I guess the turnover that Chipotle sees is so high that it's not as if they're keeping that worker for five years anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, this isn't GE where people were signing on for 40 year careers until they retired anymore. Um, most companies we work with have between 100 and 200% annual turnover.
0: Wow. So everybody leaves either. Within 12 months or even within six?
1: Yet many are leaving within six. And there, there are those lifers who uh-huh. are holding down the average, but then there's people turning over every three and six months bringing it up. Um, and so for our companies, it's a success when their employees are retaining for two, three, four years. Um, but even on a monthly or on a unit economics basis, what we always say is this the investment in an employee's education simply has to cost less than the cost of hiring and retraining their replacement. Okay. And so we work with every company to make sure that equation works, and when it does, it works beautifully.
0: Do the companies always have a good handle on exactly how much it costs to hire and retrain an employee?
1: They do. It is a major problem for the <laughs> Fortune 1000, and yeah. I've yet to meet a VP of HR benefits who can't tell you that number pretty quickly.
0: So how does your company make money in that equation?
1: So we're primarily paid by our universities and learning providers. Um, mm-hmm. And that's this is a little complicated, but we, we've come up with a pretty elegant solution to So kind of like problem. a
0: finder's fee or something?
1: So it's actually a support fee. So what um, my co-founder and I had spent a lot of time working in community colleges, uh, helping top schools recruit community college students and support them to transfer into their bachelor's degree. And what we learned along the way is that higher ed is really broken. So in 2014, the top buyers of Google Ads uh, in the whole country of any industry were for-profit universities. Huh. They were spending four to six thousand dollars to acquire a student.
0: Four to six thousand dollars.
1: Customer acquisition cost.
0: Um, wow. And so for that to work, there had to be demand for people searching for for-profit universities by doing Google searches. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So. In a recession, people flood back to school. And actually, that's continuing even post-recession. And higher ed is booming in the US right now in many sectors, not necessarily the liberal arts school that everybody talks about that's struggling. That's still true. But Americans are recognizing they need to go back to school to have a successful career. So what happens is when the for-profits are spending that much, strong nonprofit universities can't keep up to recruit the students they want. So what we've been able to do is eliminate, the, many of our schools were spending two to 3000 and losing to University of Phoenix or what have you.
0: And when you spend that money, it's spent, whether you get the student or not.
1: Exactly. So what we did was we said, hey, we're going to create this ecosystem of high-quality students who are working, which is an indicator of student success. It's one good step. Really? Who have support. Mm-hmm. They why? Have su- why is it an indicator? Yeah. Um, so if you think of it as a staircase, um, and the bottom of the staircase is being both unemployed and out of school. The first step up on the staircase is getting solid employment and getting used to the routine and the schedule and a supportive boss and a company that is, you know, believes in you. And then once you're at a company that also believes in investing in your education, you're kind of two steps up on the staircase.
0: So this is someone who's showing initiative, someone who's trying to somehow get to a better point, and that becomes... An indicator. Yeah,
1: exactly. So what we've been able to do is introduce universities to this awesome pipeline of high-quality American students who they weren't otherwise finding through digital channels. Um, and so what our universities do is they take that savings, that two to 3000 they don't have to spend to acquire a student, and they invest it into our technology and our coaching and advising services. And we coach and advise every student, um, talking to them about what we call dual retention, retaining at school and retaining at work. And that's our
0: is that an easy sell for you to the company because that's your source then of demand right that that's what that's what keeps the community college from having to you know uh, put in those those AdWords keywords and pay for the student who they're going to lose out on because they don't have the same budget so do you have enough students in the pool um, how quickly are you able to grow that
1: yeah so we're going faster than we can than we can handle right now, which is exciting. Um, Yeah, and part of that is that companies are realizing that, you know, healthcare is now a portable benefit. So when they think about it, they no longer, you can switch from Panera to Einstein Bros in a heartbeat as an employee without very many switching costs, as an economist would think about it. Mm -hmm. And so creating a benefit that really holds on to the employee is really worth it to all these companies that we're working with. Um, and for them, they're already spending the tuition dollars. So those dollars get passed to the university. Um, so they've already allocated those budgets. And most of the Fortune 1000 have a policy for this, but many of them weren't tracking it efficiently. They weren't administering it. They, weren't, uh, they had no understanding of the ROI. And so our software and our programs give them insight in how those dollars are being spent and help them track the efficacy of it
0: how much of the tuition are the companies paying?
1: So it really depends on the employee class. the interesting thing is there's a lot of money available to low-income Americans to go back to college so the federal government offers Pell Grants Mm -hmm. to anyone who hasn't earned a bachelor's degree and it's um, you you get your Pell Grant depending on your income and your family's income and so a low-income worker actually has the most available to them in other subsidies than the employee from the employer money so Mm -hmm. it's actually easiest for our $8 $10 an hour employees to piece together how to go back to school where the employer sometimes end up spending a little bit more is for a middle class employee who isn't eligible for as much from a scholarship or a federal subsidy and leans on the company. Um, But every company in the U.S. can offer up to $5,250 per employee as a non-taxed benefit. Per year? Per year. Mm -hmm. So the company gets to write that off and the employee gets to receive it as non-taxable income.
0: Tell me about your educational journey and when you started to become interested in the educational outcomes of people who didn't come from your background? Where'd you grow up?
1: Uh, So I grew up in Denver. um, And my parents were sort of like classic, uh, Activists on, you know, did a lot of city and school board reform. They wanted me, there was a turnaround school that had been ranked the lowest elementary school in Denver, and there was a movement. Denver still had court-ordered busing when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And so my parents opted in to having me bust to Denver's lowest-performing school, where they were bringing in upper-middle-class families to try and diversify. And, and then some of the students from that neighborhood were coming to my neighborhood school. What so, grades
0: were you... Being bused in
1: um, this from kindergarten, right? I, I was right at the beginning um, when I, when I was there. Kindergarten was in through
0: high school, or
1: uh, flipped back and forth. So was hmm. there for a few years. Then um, the busing plan changed, went to a different school, and then ended up back at a school in Denver that's really well known for being kind of like the hallmark public school in uh, right in the city of Denver called East. Hmm. um so I was super fortunate and had parents who reminded me daily how fortunate I was that they'd taught me how to read before I got to kindergarten. I had a state a mom who worked part-time but was home every day after school helping with homework and really filled a lot of educational opportunities for my sisters and I um, but they wanted me to go to school not in an environment that was surrounded by, homogeneity or affluence that mm-hmm. looked and sounded just like me and had similar family opportunities So that was meaningful but did I did think- you
0: appreciate okay. that at the time or I mean were you living in a diverse neighborhood or was it the case where all most of the other kids in your neighborhood were going to a different school, but you were getting bused across town. And for yeah, it was that—that
1: that was the case. Yeah, we we were in a, Denver. Is not incredibly diverse, <laughs> right. And so we were living in a neighborhood that was mostly upper middle class white families.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. So did you enjoy that you had a different experience from the friends in the neighborhood, or did you care? Were your friends mostly at school?
1: Um, A mix, Um, I don't think I was super aware of it, but almost in a positive way. Like the one thing that annoyed me, I was the only kid who brought my lunch um, and all my friends had free and reduced subsidized lunch at school. And it really annoyed me because I just wanted to be like everybody else. I wanted mm. to go through the lunch line. And so I convinced my parents to let me just pay. I wasn't eligible for the subsidized, nor should anyone have been paying for my lunch. But I like convinced them to just let me bring money and pay. Because um, you when you're five and six, you just want to be like everybody else. Right. Um, but I do think they installed a fair amount of... N- concepts of civic justice and understanding that there were things i had that had nothing to do with anything i had done or anything i deserved it was you know the the lottery of birth and the lottery of zip code and so i think that's the most important concept that i got from a very early age that installs most of what i believe in now which is talent equally distributed opportunity not equally distributed
0: so when you got to high school I take it, if this was kind of a a high-performing or well-known high school, the kids from the neighborhood were back in the high school with you then, but then maybe some other kids who who had been in elementary school with you also, because Mm -hmm. oftentimes everything converges in high school. Yeah. Are you then the weird kid who has this broad worldview because you've experienced life on both sides of the tracks, and so your outlook is a little bit different? (sighs)
1: I don't know that I was, and I think high school is kind of part of some of the time in life where you're not always as. A, if I was, I'm not sure I was fully aware of it. Okay. Um, East is a very special place. It's like a legendary I was the weird
0: kid. Okay, so I you asked. had
1: it. Okay, <laughs> East is a legendary school in Denver. Um, Denver, as I mentioned, not incredibly diverse, but East is at least when I was there, it was 40 percent, um, students. 40 percent of the students were white. 40 percent of the students were black. Twenty percent about were Hispanic. Denver is now even increasingly Hispanic as a representation. So I'm sure it's shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was this incredibly cool melting pot. What drove me nuts, though, was that when you walked into the honors and AP classes, which I took, it was incredibly segregated by class. Mm -hmm. So that's where the neighborhood starts to play an even larger role. And I'd argue, especially. Then um, then race, was class was playing a huge role in dictating what classrooms people ended up in, um, and that bugged me.
0: Um, so what were you involved in then?
1: Um, I was in debate, uh, captain of the debate team, which is so <laughs> dorky. I uh, played a lot of sports. I swam. I'm a synchronized swimmer. Wow. Which is a, a funny do you still I consider
0: yourself a synchronized swimmer?
1: I kind of do, yeah. I coached all through college, and it's like my favorite sport. So I
0: take it you have to find other synchronized swimmers in the area, <laughs> or else you're just a swimmer. Yeah, you,
1: you can't Exactly. <laughs> a solo synchronized swimmer is nothing at all. Right. <laughs> um, uh, that was a really fun thing I did growing up with a mix. It was a, a team of women aged 5 to 19, um, which is really cool because you don't normally get to play sports with a mixed-age group, and it was all female, um, (laughs) which when I look back, I'm like, why I feel confident leading a team now, and we have a female-founded company, and most we hire men, but we have a lot of female execs at Guild and a lot of leaders. Um, Being able to be a part of a really powerful um, culture of women growing up, but it was an athletic one. It wasn't not to knock cheerleading, but it wasn't like cheerleading. It was a competitive athletic sport, but Cheerleaders women, tell
0: me that that's competitive they and, they do. and as well.
1: And, and I just like to think synchro is a little bit different. But yes, <laughs> not, to, yeah, not to knock cheerleading, but a, a, an environment that was really empowering, so I did that. Um, and then I was a congressional page. I lived in D.C. my junior year of high school and worked in Congress, which is Probably formative to why I really believe that we've got to shift back in America to something closer to the apprenticeship model, and there's a lot of reasons European apprenticeships don't work. But a lot of what we've done at Guild is. You mean help they kids. don't work here. They don't work in the U.S. Here. Right. Yeah, they work really well there. Because people look at well.
0: Germany and think we want that, but so why won't it work?
1: Um, so you look at Germany and Switzerland, and I spent some time studying those models while we were building Guild, um, and we got to go visit the. The uh, industries in those countries are far more narrow than the U.S., and that's actually a compliment to the U.S. There are a handful of tracks that they've built out for Swiss youth and German youth to figure out which track they take. And you're talking six, seven, eight industries. Hmm. You look at the U.S., we have an incredibly diverse economy, which is a wonderful thing. But because of that, it's really hard to look at a 15-year-old and say, okay, time to pick. Are you going to do automotive or light manufacturing or, you know, it's so much broader in the U.S. Yeah. And because of that, I think we need to do it in a different way. And I think some of our companies are actually starting to pioneer this, which is how do we help people get into a job, start learning Basic skills, as well as broadly applicable skills like management and critical thinking, and a lot of the things that happen in a social-based—all those soft skills that everybody's talking about—and why aren't colleges teaching soft skills? Well, the big companies are, and that there's sort of a, an interesting flip there that I think needs to be reevaluated, and we're getting there.
0: Hmm. So, uh, do you think the liberal arts model is uniquely valuable to Americans? Because it sounds like. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into what you're saying. It sounds like you're saying that in more uh, limited, integrated economies, it's easier for you to say to a younger person, these are the only options available, so pick one. You can be an apprentice. You'll end up with, with a higher-paying job. In the United States, the options are broad. The, comp- the, the country is huge. You need these soft skills. Maybe you should read some Shakespeare along the way as you're figuring out how to navigate all of these different options and relate to people and deal with interpersonal dynamics.
1: So yes, but I'm going to take a riff on soft skills away from the liberal arts and towards the management arts. So when we look today at what the fastest path to the middle class is for any of our students, it's through management. And you look at the job growth that we've had since the recession, there's two big trends. One, 95% of those jobs have gone to people who had attended college, and that is very meaningful because that's never been the case in American history before, and it shifted dynamically. Hmm. And two, what percent? 95% okay. of the jobs have gone to people who've attended college since the recession. Yeah, it's a really big shift. Um, and two, management was the fastest growing role post-recession. Coding's up there, but it's not number one.
0: Um, Now, when you say management, do you mean kind of nominal management where just there are people who are reporting to you or you're responsible for their performance, or do you have some other level? Because, I mean, of course, there are jobs, uh, probably many of your uh, customers Uh, offer where managers make just a little bit, maybe a few cents an hour more than others. Is that the type of management you're talking about? So the
1: classification and the, the group at Georgetown that did all this work, they classified, I think, a little bit broader than that. So it is looking at where core functions of your job are around managing people, processes, or projects. Okay, um, and a big part of that, people, is managing patients. When you look at healthcare, a lot of the the growth in um, this the healthcare sector, and that's the fastest booming one right now, is around patient management and managing the healthcare providers who manage patients. Mm. Um, so when we look at, for our students, like, if, and our goal is economic mobility for all of them, when we think about how can we help them move up to the middle class, um, management is often the key. And so I think soft skills are the core component of that, but I'm not sure that the liberal arts college version of teaching those soft skills is necessarily the right one. I think some of the best soft skill instruction I've seen have actually been in out of L&D departments. Of great companies um, and out of leadership more- and development mm-hmm. okay yeah sorry that. like <laughs> wonky
0: what's so good about that
1: What's so good about what they're doing
0: Yeah what have you seen that blew you away
1: Well so a mix a lot of it is that it's practical and applied I don't think soft skills are well taught in lecture halls which is sort of an obvious statement, but it's being done all over the US. And so when you see it taught in small room, you know, small interactive classrooms, which are often in the back of companies or in the back of restaurants, backs of hospitals, with training that's applicable to skill sets that people already know, what we know is that from the learning process, it's much easier to develop a new skill on the backbone of a skill you already know. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of our students, they're taking a skill they already know around something tactical or a trade or something they know how to do like cooking or inserting an IV in a hospital or something like that. And then they're learning how to wrap soft skills and or managerial skills around that experience to level it up. And so it's a From a learning perspective, it's very effective, and we know that to be true from learning sciences. Um, But companies are doing it because it's just obvious and because they have the resources and the apprenticeship structures to actually teach those skills.
0: Let me throw you one that might end up being an underhanded pitch. But right now, Congress is, is in the process of considering some changes to the tax code. And... One of the things that that gets me scratching my head on CNBC, you know, we're looking at is this more or less beneficial for the middle class versus the upper middle versus the upper classes, looking at, you know, the alternative minimum tax, looking at where the tax brackets are. But when I look at income growth over the past 30 to 40 years, so much of it has shifted, the growth has shifted toward people who were rich already, that I wonder when you're talking about just raw top-line economic growth numbers Oh, the economy is going to go three percent if we do this well okay the economy grows three percent but if things continue as they have been structurally most of that is gonna accrue toward rich people even if the tax cuts are spread out relatively equally relatively equal right now doesn't seem to be ending up equal so anyway big lead-up My question is this you talked about the tax break that companies get to provide a certain amount of funding toward workers' college education. If that amount were boosted, would that be a good thing, or would it perhaps cause some of these institutions to raise their tuition and just, you know, move the goalposts?
1: It would be a good thing, and the reason that is is that tuition reimbursement is still a, a fair, a smaller percentage of the total contribution to tuition in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Com- really, where most of tuition is coming from is from families' pockets federal government pays for a lot of employees or a lot of students to go back to school. um, And then a number of other streams. So it's still small enough that it wouldn't have that tipping effect where colleges would change their prices as a result. So we're big proponents. There's actually a bill up um, this year. It's a little hard to tell what's going to happen in Congress this year. Um, It's a little hard
0: to tell what's going to happen in Congress, if anything, any year, but okay.
1: Yeah. So uh, we're not sure if it'll happen, but there's pretty widespread and bipartisan support as well as a lot of business and um, consumer support. So really like all sides here believe that it'd be a really positive choice if Congress choos- chose to move the limit from fifty two fifty to ten thousand.
0: Why shouldn't Congress move it even more than that? Because it sounds to me like you're like you said before, that the outcomes are better for prospective students, for students who are working, right? So I mean, I'm, I'm all for Pell Grants and all that, but I'm wondering if you're going to give money to people who have um, economic need, why not tilt it even more toward people who are working already and give companies an incentive to say, if you're working for us, we're going to help you with your education. I
1: couldn't agree more. I actually think there's even an argument to say that companies should be incentivized to invest more in their low- and middle-income employees versus, you know, there's an argument to be made. Should we be helping Goldman Sachs subsidize the MBAs? Right. Should we send Fred to business school? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> at that point, should we be helping Goldman, you know, write off that 20K investment? I don't know. That's for Congress to decide. But I think there's a great argument that it should be regressive and supporting in in the down direction.
0: Uh, how do you make it more aggressive if if you think that's a good idea?
1: I think you could just hinge it to wage. So you could say you can write off up to a 15000 20000 investment in an employee whose W-2 is capped at this amount. And for the employees who make more than some amount, you're capped at how much you can invest in them.
0: I guess then the problem becomes if the worker is so good that they're getting promoted while right. they're in That's school, they end up little... falling into this yeah, gap where,
1: and this is tough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Johnny, we got to take that money away from right. you because you're just too good. Which Either that think... or we can pay you less.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I don't, So I don't <laughs> I don't imagine they go here, but generally I really hope they lift it.
0: Uh, and I just used two hypothetically male names, which I'm feeling bad about. I wonder in the students who you're seeing go through your program at Guild Education, how is it breaking down gender wise? Because the numbers that I'm seeing are showing that women are going to college more, performing better overall.
1: We, you know, it's funny. I, um, in starting Guild, wouldn't say that. Much of it was core to my identity as a woman, but today there's a whole bunch of things that are driving in that direction. Uh, our students are majority female, which is the case of higher ed, and especially the case of low and middle income higher ed goers. Especially. Mm-hmm. And there's unfortunately, this is actually more of just a challenge in the opposite direction. There's a, an issue with low and middle income men not choosing to return to school to upskill. Um, and part Why? of that, so there's a theory that a lot of the skills where you're well suited to upskill are in the service economy, particularly in healthcare, nursing, um, caring for others, child care teaching. Um, and men are less likely to move away from a manufacturing or um, hard skills role to reskill or upskill in one of those service trades. And so men are less likely to go back right now.
0: And that's why we have those, you're a nurse, you make a difference commercials that were are showing male nurses yep. because...
1: Yeah, it's a real challenge. There's a real right. stereotype against male nursing. The nursing is one of the best jobs to move into in America today. Um, so there's that. A lot of our university presidents are women, which is quite cool. Um, and a lot of the people we work with, so the leaders in the HR and learning and development sector are often females, especially at the Fortune 1000, because those have historically been two of the fastest paths to the sea level for women, especially in decades prior where it was quite hard to break through glass ceilings in the Fortune 1000. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of a stereotype, but HR and learning and development were often two of the places where women could more quickly rise the ranks, especially ambitious women who wanted to make a difference and lead. Um, And so we have this very cool ecosystem where on a regular basis, the leaders of all parts of our ecosystem are strong women. So Mm. I feel privileged to do that.
0: This isn't your first startup, is it? It is not. What was your first startup?
1: I started a another ed tech organization in business school that helped community college students find jobs that were related to what they were studying. Cause so what we found is that a lot of community college students were working, but their work had nothing to do with what they were studying. And so we built an app that helped them figure out how they could get jobs in their local area that were more closely tied to what they wanted to learn.
0: Hmm. What happened?
1: Um, I worked on it the summer between business school and got uh, cold feet about dropping out, honestly. I spent a bunch of time thinking about it, talked to a bunch of investors, and they were like, okay, if you're going to do this, you got to drop out of school. So I was going to have to quit my MBA and quit my master's in education. At? At? Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, (laughs) got pretty nervous about that um, and put some time into it and decided, okay, I'll just put the technology on hold for the year, finish out school and then decide. But I got lucky. And in the fall, while I was back at school. Someone, uh, a great company purchased the technology for me. So got to put a little notch in my student debt and uh, the the technology got to live on, which is what every entrepreneur cares about. Is like, did my hard work get to live on? And it lives on today, which is very cool.
0: So you feel like you got the best outcome.
1: Yeah, and I found my way to Guild. That technology was meaningful and community colleges were buying it and we were finding a way to make it work. But I really believe in combining human interactions with technology. And that's what we do at Guild. Like, we've got a really robust technology platform that helps companies offer this benefit and that we use for all of our coaches to help support students while they go back to school. But our coaches are the backbone of what we do at Guild, and it's how we change lives. Um, and so I feel fortunate that I found my way to a tech-enabled company, mm-hmm. um, which takes more investment and more support, and it's taken more years. But it's like it's what gets me up in the morning.
0: Are you technical? Do you code?
1: I do not. No, I've, uh, da- you know, learned enough to dabble and to try and be supportive and lead my engineers as best as I can, um, but they're the experts and I'm the business partner.
0: So you, I imagine you got pretty tech literate, though, being at Stanford, mm. uh, getting an MBA there. How has technology influenced the what you've decided to build, what your ambition is, even though you yourself are writing the code?
1: Yeah. So um, what's changed, a couple things. When I was first working in ed tech seven, eight years ago, just the sheer bandwidth and speed of your ability to teach people online was n- not feasible. I mean, we were barely keeping together the user experience of an online class. It just was choppy and mm. annoying. And people would break up in the middle of their comment in class. It just didn't work. In the last eight years, it's just been leaps and bounds in our ability to teach people online. And the reason that's really meaningful to me is you think about our typical students. They're incredibly busy. They work more than 40 hours a week. They often have many family responsibilities and brutal commutes. I think that's something that often gets overlooked. And so the ability of one of our single moms to be able to log into class from home at 9 p.m. after she puts her kids to bed That's the difference between her being able to go to college and not go to college because she sure as hell can't drive to community college at 10 a.m. the next day. She's at work (laughs) and there aren't any classes at 9 p.m. And even if there were, that would mean leaving her kids at home. And so that's where technology is just transforming our ability to offer new opportunities in the learning sector. Um, And then beyond that, data is so important we're the first organization in the country that has data inputs of how someone's doing at work because we get data from our employers about when someone gets a promotion what their schedules like what their opportunities are their career path Mm. and then we get all the data from their school we know if they miss a class we know what the next semester looks like we're helping them schedule we're helping them you know we send an alert if they miss an assignment or we send them a kudos if they do really well And we're the first org that has those two data feeds coming together. And so my coaches are some of the most empowered coaches in the country to do what they need to do to help someone succeed.
0: So what are you learning that nobody else knows?
1: Oh, I like that question. Um, Couple of things. Um, Well, I I don't know that no one knows this, but scheduling is one of the core problems for low-wage workers in America. Figuring out when you go to work, the inconsistency of shift scheduling. I applaud the efforts of our, the companies we work with who have streamlined the schedules for their employees, which takes sacrifice. Um, but the balance between having that, child care responsibilities, family responsibilities, commute, and then a school schedule is really where it breaks down. And so I guess the, the pithiest thing I could say about that is that when you look at most students in America today drop out of college. It's something we don't like to talk about, but our community colleges have a 5% on-time graduation rate, right? Five. 5% on time. Mm. So the other 95%, when you look at why people are dropping out of college, it is not academic ability, it is scheduling and money. And we've got the data to prove that. And I think that's important because back to like what we were talking about earlier, It's not that low and middle income America doesn't have the chops to succeed in college or to upskill or to train. It's that the circumstances have made it incredibly hard to do so. And when we solve for things like their schedule, like their ability to pay for school, their ability to have support and to do it well, they can achieve.
0: One of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is the incredible amount of wasted money in higher education right now, both on the marketing side from community colleges who are trying to get these students through placing ads, through yep. billboards, what have you, and they're not getting the students, and that money is lost. And then and from four the year students too, yeah. four-year schools it's like too, everybody. And then from the students who are getting near the finish line and then not getting the degree, so they don't get the salary benefit of the knowledge that they've gotten. They don't get the degree, they've spent the money, and then eventually the value of the credits that they've accrued sort of ages out and they've got nothing to show for
1: it. Yeah, exactly. There are 31 million Americans today who have attended college, who have debt, but no degree.
0: 31 million. Yep. That's a tenth of the population. Uh Uh-huh. It's a fifth
1: of the working population. Right. Yeah.
0: So you got a lot of work to do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, thanks. It's been a great conversation. This is awesome. Thank you. My thanks to Rachel Carlson. I'm John Fort from CNBC and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. On YouTube, you'll see video from some of these interviews and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube or fortknox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.